Okay, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this night. God, thank you for bringing us here safely. I thank you for a cool place to meet out of the warm weather. I thank you for these Bibles we have to read. I thank you for the Holy Spirit you have given to us so that we could understand what we read. God, we thank you for this great gift of baptism. Uh, We are thankful that you have given us such a, a precious sign and symbol that points to what you have done in our hearts. So we thank you, God. Pray you be honored tonight and glorified. You'd help me to speak well and that it would be understandable and, and helpful for everyone who's here tonight. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I first want to answer the question before we get into the points you have on your outline there of why have a class on on baptism uh, baptism i think deserves a class because baptism needs to be understood uh, it's it's one of only two ordinances or sacraments in the bible that christ has given to his church uh, one is communion, the other is baptism. So it is it is significant as well. I think special teaching is important or class is important, especially when we're talking about a doctrine that is commonly misunderstood. And I think that would be the case with baptism. Uh, it is frequently misunderstood. I think I misunderstood it for a, a long time. And the results, when, when baptism is not understood, it, it can be really harmful to the church because one of the things, we'll get into this, that, that, that baptism is a sign of entrance into God's family. So baptism is like putting the, the, you know, the church and, and pastors come around the person being baptized and it's, it's almost like putting a stamp on them. Uh, and saying, yes, we, we recognize this person as a believer. Um, this person is a, a Christian, and we, we welcome you into the family of God. And when baptism is done in a, a local church, we welcome you into this, this local family. So if, uh, if that is, is, is done, and baptism really isn't understood by the person who's becoming uh, baptized, then what you can very easily end up with is a church or churches that are filled with uh, notional Christians or nominal Christians or as John Owen called them in the 17th century, just mere professors. You know, who say, yes, I'm a Christian. You know, they check that on the ballot box, but they, they don't, they're not really a Christian as we're going to look at, at tonight. But, if we don't understand baptism and so we, we baptize these people and put that stamp on and say, you know, welcome to the church. You are a, a Christian. Well, now we've got now we've got a problem. Now we've got, uh, you know, the, the, the testimony of the church 
is injured because the church is this supposed to be this, you know, light of the world and a city on a hill and salt of the earth. But the church isn't going to be that witness to the world if the church isn't made up of Christians. And so if baptism is, uh, which is a sign of entrance into God's family, if that is misunderstood, we can we can get into some we can get into some trouble. So we want to take baptism seriously. We want to understand baptism. We want to properly administer uh, baptism in hopes that we can safeguard against some of those things. So now let's get to the outline here. Uh, I think we got six points that we'll that we'll work through, and I will pretty much just read what you have in your outline, and then I may belabor some points or uh, you know and elaborate. But first of all, what is baptism? That was the first question. Well, Christian baptism is an, an ordinance of the church whereby the inward work of God's saving grace is outwardly displayed. So baptism is a symbol or a sign of adoptively belonging to the family of God. So first, baptism is an an ordinance. What an, what ordinance means is that baptism has been commanded by Jesus. Okay, so we have two ordinances or two sacraments. And when we say ordinance, we mean talking about baptism and communion. These are two commands that Christ gave to His church. You are to practice these signs. You are to take part in these symbols. Okay, so they are ordained by Christ. Uh, but they're also sacramental. They're sacraments. And, and a sacrament, or what it means for something to be sacramental, is that what you see happening on the outside is not all there is to it. What's happening on the outside in communion and baptism, it's a representation of an inward, of an inward reality. So it's meant to, to point to something much deeper. And it's point to signify something much deeper. The phrase I use is, is baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. That's the basic definition that we were looking for. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there it is, Jesus commanding baptism. It is an ordinance. Acts two thirty eight. Now we've got the first the apostles, the first elders and pastors. Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost and says to the people, Repent and what? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there it is. Baptism is clearly, clearly commanded. A couple of questions. Does baptism save? Does baptism save? I grew up in a church that had uh, in its history, we were part of the Church of Christ. And there was a strain within the Church of Christ that was, was our roots uh, a non-instrumental Church of Christ where, where many of them also believed in baptismal regeneration. Bap- in other words, you are not saved unless you are baptized, physically dunked in the, in the water. 
And it is at that point that you are born again. You are regenerated. And so they believe that baptism does save. I remember having a discussion with one man who believed this because it, it, I didn't see that in Scripture. It almost made baptism how it did. It made baptism into a work that you're saved by, something you have to do in order to be saved. I remember discussing it with him, and, and I gave him the, you know, the argument that I had heard before, you know, well, what about the thief on the cross? You know, that was, that was one that, that people ask. And then, and then he went so far as to say that if Bob gets saved, you know, Bob confesses Christ as Lord, um, you need to get baptized right away, of course, because it saves you. If he is in a car accident on the way to the baptistry and he is killed. And my friend looked at me and said, he goes to hell. I thought, wow, I'm glad that's not biblical. I'm really glad that's not biblical because baptism does not baptism does not save us. Though grace is mysteriously mediated through the ordinance, it is not saving grace, but rather sanctifying grace. We are more conformed to the image of Christ as we obey him in the call to be baptized. Now, a second question, sort of like it, is baptism necessary for salvation? So again, I would want to say it this way. That without in any way diminishing the duty and delight of baptism for a believer, we must also warn against thinking which suggests that salvation is dependent upon baptism. The gospel is one of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So we really believe we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And so baptism, therefore, is not necessary for salvation. Now, all that said, we've already covered this. Baptism is commanded by Jesus Christ. So it's one thing if someone has professed belief in Christ and claims to be a believer and a period of months has gone by and there has not been opportunity for them to be properly baptized. But it's another issue entirely if someone claims to be a Christian and has been a Christian for you know five, six, seven years and is resisting baptism. Now that's a totally different scenario because then the question is, what is keeping this person from becoming baptized? That person is in disobedience. Christ has clearly commanded them to be baptized. I'm not saying you're saved by it, but why are you living in disobedience? Why are you living in this intentional sin? Why aren't you being baptized? It's an ordinance, okay, commanded by Christ, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But that said, Baptism is not necessary for salvation. As well, there's a footnote here. A footnote. Um, No, I'm not ready for that footnote yet. That footnote is misplaced on my outline. Okay. Uh, point number two, what does baptism signify? What does baptism signify? So we've got it. It's a symbol. It is a sign, an outward sign of an inward grace. What is the inward? What is it pointing to? 
Baptism is a visible sign of the inward work of God's grace in salvation. It is the public proclamation that a person has been regenerated and given new life by God. Okay, so baptism is pointing to an inward grace. It's pointing to the reality that someone has been saved by God. They've been born again. They've been regenerated. They've been converted. They've put their faith in Christ. They've repented to God. These are all saying the same thing. These are all saying the same thing. Okay, this person has gone from darkness to light. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Okay, they have been born again. Titus 3.5 Christ saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Christ has caused us to be born again. This is the inward work of grace He has done in us as believers that makes us cry out in faith to Him. He has opened our eyes. He has opened our ears. He has taken our stony heart, given us a heart of flesh. Okay, we're all saying the same thing here. Okay, he's converted us. And baptism is an outward sign that is, that is pointing to that. Let me get more specific. Three of them here. Specifically, baptism is a sign of the following salvation graces. First, baptism is a sign of spiritual union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We are united to Him in His death, whereby our sins have been nailed to the cross. And we are united to Him in His resurrection, whereby we live in new life now and are destined for new life in heaven. So what Romans 6 and Colossians 2 are going to tell us is that what God has done inwardly, that baptism is a symbol of, is God has united us to the death of Jesus and united us to the resurrection of Jesus so that His death means something for us and to us. And His resurrection means something to us and for us. Listen to that in Romans 6, 1-11. through What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So baptism is meaning here united to him in his death. He's going to explain. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of his father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see that we've been united to his death. We've been united to His resurrection. When He died, we died. Our sins were put to death on the cross. When He was raised to life, we were raised to life. We're new creations. 4 verse 5, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And it goes on. And Colossians 2 says the same thing. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we see here that baptism is a sign of spiritual union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I don't know if you caught it, but here in Romans 6, it is using baptism in a, a different way than we're, we're talking about tonight. In other words, when it, he's talking about baptism here, he says, you've been baptized. He's not talking about you were immersed in water. When he's using the word baptized here, he means you were immersed in Christ. You were united with Christ. And that's describing this inward work that then physical baptism is an outward sign of. So another way of looking at that is that we only baptize people who have been baptized. Okay, something spiritual, spiritual baptism has taken place. God has spiritually immersed someone in Christ so that they are buried with him and then they are raised with him. And then baptism is pointing to that union with Christ. Okay, second. This usually makes sense right away to us. Baptism is a sign of spiritual cleansing through the forgiveness of sins, right? In your Bible, and it's true for us today, water symbolizes cleansing. Okay, you start seeing now why God has chosen baptism the way we practice it to to point to what he's done in our heart. Okay, first it's showing us that you've been buried with Christ your sins, you're dead to sin, and you've been raised with Christ. And as He lives new life, you live new life. And as He has been raised to life, never to die again, we too, at one point, will be raised to life, never to die again. Okay, so baptism is showing that. Now, baptism is also, we are immersed in what? We're immersed in water. What is water a symbol of in the Bible? Water is a symbol of cleansing. And so as we'll read in these scriptures, what what has God done in us in forgiving us? He has washed our sins away. So we dunk somebody in this water and it is a symbol that our sins have been washed away. Acts twenty two sixteen. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. First Corinthians six eleven. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hebrews ten twenty two. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, and third and finally, baptism is also a sign of our passing safely through the waters of God's judgment. So water also, water symbolizes cleansing in the Bible. Water also symbolizes judgment in the Bible. In our sermon series, we're, we're, we're seeing that, that we know water means judgment. God just flooded the earth. Um, you remember when in Exodus chapter 14, when the Egyptians are chasing the Israelites who are fleeing uh, under the leadership of Moses. And do you, you remember 
what does God engulf the Egyptians with? It's water. The water is, is God's, God's judgment. As well, these scriptures also tell us, as Psalm 88.7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. There is water is a symbol of judgment. Jonah is another story where water is used for judgment. And what does he say? You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You need to get an outline. I know, I said you need to get one. Yeah. On the table right back there. Sorry, I should have noticed that earlier, son. We're on, we're on page three, the bottom of page three. Um, and then uh, uh, 1 Peter 3.21. Oh, that's right. We're on the top of page four. <laughs> Thank you. So, we have gone down up there under sea, we have gone down into the waters of death and God's judgment and have emerged unscathed, in fact, cleansed and renewed. And this safe passage is by the merits of Jesus Christ. So just think, do you do you see all of these represented in in baptism? Okay, again, so we are we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are washed and cleansed from our sin. And we pass safely through the waters of God's judgment. Right? We don't, when we baptize somebody, we don't hold them under the water. Okay? That would not be passing safely through the waters of God's judgment. Right? We, we, bring, we may leave them there for a, you know, a few seconds. We bring them up. We bring them up. And that's a symbol that we have passed. We shouldn't. But through Christ, we pass safely through the waters of God's God's judgment. So to summarize, baptism is an outward sign pointing to the inward work of God's grace in the salvation of a sinner. This is why baptism is synonymous with celebration. Something dirty has become clean. Something dead has become alive. Something old has become new. Okay, so A, B, and C there getting pretty heavy and specific, and I want you to see how, how rich baptism is. But then, this summary over all of that, okay, baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. Okay, God has saved you. He's washed you. He's cleansed you. And baptism is a sign, okay, this is why we do this publicly. Why baptism is done publicly. It's a celebration. You know, one one. Saturday out of the year, we have this baptism event down at the Negro Bar, and it's a celebration. We're excited, and God has given us this sign and a symbol so that all of us can, can, can rejoice, and we can see this sign that is pointing us to the inward work of God's grace in, in someone's heart. So outward sign of an inward grace. Number three, who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Well, this may be clear to you, it may not. But at Veritas Church, we practice believer's baptism. Okay, or credo baptism is what it's been called historically. Credo from the Latin word meaning belief. So that means that we believe that believers and believers alone should be baptized. 
So all who have turned from their sin and have turned to Jesus, placing their faith in his finished work on the cross, shall be eligible for baptism at Veritas Church. If you look at that footnote down there, number seven. We practice credo baptism as opposed to pedo baptism. Okay, pedo means child, Latin word for child, which is the baptizing of infants. And we'll talk about that more. I'll go through Appendix A um, at the end of our time here and contrast credo baptism and pedo baptism. But we are credo Baptist. We only baptize believers here, uh, which based on our understanding of baptism, of course, that's what I, what I mean. If we've, if we've walked through this class and you're in agreement so far, that's kind of a, as a dub moment. Um, Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them, baptizing them, the them. Who's the them? The them is disciples. OK, so we believe in believers baptism. That said, it kind of goes back to my concern at the very beginning of this class. We must be diligent in discerning whether or not a person is truly converted. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. Therefore, it is our responsibility to first look for evidence of the inward grace. Does the individual have a publicly credible faith? We believe the church does a tremendous disservice to an unbeliever if they confirm their faith through baptism rashly. Therefore, it is our church practice to take time to witness belief before baptizing. So you've probably figured this out. Maybe you've I was a, I grew up in churches that did spontaneous baptisms. And actually, my first uh, seven years of ministry were in a church where I I practiced spontaneous baptisms. In other words, I was a youth pastor and we would take, uh, you know, high school, junior high kids to camp every year and you could get them all baptized. That was a that was a piece of cake. Uh, you know, you did emotion, these, these emotional appeals and you got them to say these words and say, yes, I, I believe in Jesus. And I don't know if any of you have ever had the camp experience, but it's 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 pretty wild. Um, good, genuine things happen there and have happened to me. But a lot of it is just total chaos at one point or at some point. Typically, you know, when you have these emotional altar calls, um, Peer pressure simply kicks in. When you have the majority of people, you know, these are junior high students, you have the majority of them now going forward and saying yes to Jesus. Now, now it's just a matter of peer pressure, you know, and, and most junior high students are going to go with the are going to go with the majority. That's what I would have done and did every summer. <laughs> and so um, so we don't we don't do that here. Uh, we don't do spontaneous baptisms. And and this is why. We think that if we understand what baptism really is, then we need to make sure that the outward sign is pointing to an inward grace. And if there is no inward grace, then we should not practice the outward sign. As you know, that also doesn't mean that we have some three-year process whereby we you know, run people through the ringer. But it does mean we want to know people it does mean we expect that they would have a uh, take the time to have a reputation established here. It does mean that we want them to go to this class. And it does mean that we want to sit down with them as a pastor and really talk with them and, and make sure that it's, the, that it's the right thing. What is the harm in baptizing someone prematurely? Because that's the argument there. 
I have many friends who practice spontaneous baptisms, and they just they say you just take the person's word for it. And uh, the harm is that some of those people may truly be converted, and some of them may not. Some of them may not. So here's the deal: if we baptize someone whose faith is not credible, we undermine the meaning of baptism. That's Zelders. That's our concern. Baptism is a sign of salvation. If we take this lightly, we may irresponsibly baptize someone who has not been united to Christ in his death, burial and resurrection, who has not had their sins washed away, who has not been brought safely through the waters of God's judgment. So what's happening then? We celebrate, affirm and welcome into our church family an unbeliever. So this just comes right down to just taking again, taking baptism very seriously. This can be very harmful to the church as it confuses members into misunderstanding what actually takes place in conversion. Now, is this is this foolproof? No. I'm I'm sure even in the four years that Veritas has existed, uh, that we have baptized unbelievers. I'm odds would say that that's probably happened. Because as 1 Samuel 16 says, the Lord alone looks at the heart and can see the heart. And we, we cannot see the heart. But this is how we would respond to that. But that doesn't then excuse us to be irresponsible with baptism. And we think that's sort of, that can be a cop-out. You say, well, we can't see the heart, so... Well, yeah, but, but God also talks much about by your fruit you will, you will know them. So there is a difference between uh, baptizing someone rashly based on, yes, I believe in Jesus, and baptizing them based on a credible, a credible profession of faith. And so we just want to be responsible with that. Um, As well, this causes great harm to the testimony of the church, to the world around. Right. The world should see a difference in those who are the church, a difference rooted in the freedom they have in Christ. An unbeliever will not be capable of displaying such freedom. And yet through baptism and membership will be seen as a co-witness of such graces. This is a huge problem in the church today. I mean, most Christians who have been in, you know, more than one church would say, yeah, you know, the, the the church does not have the the witness that we 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 think it should and that the church does not have the influence that we that we think it should and and many would agree and come down and say that well part of the reason that the church doesn't have the testimony that it should is that the church has a lot of uh, nominal christians in it and and notional christians in it not really disciples of jesus christ who know him believe him obey him enjoy him proclaim him that's a christian Not just, you know, some verses, but you believe the gospel and it has transformed your life. You're obedient to Christ. Whatever his word says, you're obedient. You enjoy him. He's the greatest delight in your life. And you proclaim him to others. That's what a disciple is. And Jesus says to baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if we're baptizing people who are not believers... And we hold these people up and say, look, these are all baptized believers. We start filling our church. Here we are, baptized believers. And half of them are Christians and half of them are not. Well, what, what kind of a of an example of grace and Christ is that going to be? And it ends up being a pretty, a pretty lame one. We need to be considered the testimony of the church. And even worse, 
great harm may befall the baptized unbeliever. And I've seen this. He or she may live a life void of any spiritual fruit and yet find security in remembering that a church, pastors even, confirmed his or her salvation through baptism. I tell you, that's why me and Pastor Curtis and Pastor Matt do not want to baptize people rashly. Because it, it, it does put a, a human stamp, if you will, that recognizes this person and says, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And if we do that rashly, God forbid, and I know people who have been in this position, hold on to that as their security. I'm saved. I'm good. I'm a Christian. Pastors told me I was. The church welcomed me. They celebrated. I've been baptized. And on and on and on. What if that person never actually bore fruit in keeping with repentance? What if they never actually showed signs that they were a believer? Now they're just just deluded. Deluded. And that would be frightening. We would much rather, much rather sit down with a person and say, whoa, let's put on the brakes. Let's talk about the gospel and let's talk about what a believer is and who Christ is. And let's let's make sure that you're actually saved and the inward grace is there before we go through the outward sign. OK, another common question. Can a person be rebaptized? Right. Rebaptized. Like I think I was baptized four times or something. I was every year at summer camp. Uh, so, again, based on our understanding so far of baptism, that should kind of squelch this. Right. The answer would be no, because but some see baptism as a sort of rededication ceremony. Right. Almost every year when we have our baptism event come around, people say, I want to be baptized. And we ask, well, have you been baptized before? And they say, oh, yeah, a couple times. So well, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. We don't want you to be a repeat offender. You don't need to keep you don't need to keep you don't need to keep doing this. It's not a rededication c- ceremony. But that said, let me. Let me work this out. Christians who have this understanding of baptism will often surface from a season of sin and desire to be rebaptized, looking to feel clean again before God. Okay, that's not what baptism is. So that would not be rooted in a proper understanding of baptism. Baptism is a one-time event because it is a sign of a one-time event, the conversion of an unbeliever. Now that's said, because I do want to qualify this. That's said. I hope this makes sense. There may be many today who had an experience called baptism that was actually no baptism at all. They were baptized before they knew and trusted Jesus. So it was an outward sign of an inward grace. Or I'm sorry, it was not an outward sign of an inward grace because the inward grace hadn't taken place yet. A believer needs to ask himself or herself, was I truly conver- this is the question was I truly converted when I was baptized or another way did I truly love and trust Jesus when I was baptized so we have quote rebaptized people here at Veritas um, they they did something when they were younger called baptism and, and it looked the same as what we're going to do on the 22nd but as they go back they realize that they weren't they weren't a Christian. So it wasn't an outward sign of an inward grace. It was just an outward thing that they did. And so, technically speaking, we would say that they're not getting rebaptized. They're getting baptized for the first time because that was not actually baptism, because the inward grace wasn't there yet. So it was not. It was not pointing. It wasn't signifying anything. 
so we are willing to help people work through that and and redo those. Number four, how should a person be baptized? Well, water is important. You need water. Every instance of baptism in the New Testament clearly involves water. Makes sense when we consider the common use for water, physical cleansing, as well as in Scripture. That's what it's a symbol of. In terms of how the water is used in baptism, um, I don't need to read this. So there's there's two common modes of baptism, and the modes are immersion and sprinkling. Immersion and sprinkling. Well, the word baptizo, the Greek word, literally means to plunge. It means to plunge. So we would take that very literally. And that's why when we baptize, we don't sprinkle with water. When we baptize, we actually fully immerse somebody in water. As well, we believe that when you consider all those things that baptism is a sign of, right? The passing through the waters of God's judgment, um, the the being cleansed, uh, immersion is is, uh, visually makes the point, we would say, uh, much more emphatically and clearly than just the than just the sprinkling of of water. However, okay, there are some the footnote there. There are some who would argue that other modes of baptism are valid. Obviously, pedo Baptists do not immerse infants. Okay, CPS would be at every baptism. They don't they don't dunk infants under under water. They they that that mode just simply wouldn't uh, wouldn't work for them. Um, and, and they would argue that sprinkling of water would satisfy the passing under and emerging from water necessary in baptism. So that's not where we are, but we wouldn't get bent out of shape over that. We wouldn't call that a sinful mode of, of baptism. And one of the one of the reasons that could be just very uh practically necessary is if you have somebody who becomes a believer and has some sort of a condition to where they they cannot be immersed in water Uh, maybe a person who's severely disabled for example Um, well do we just not baptize them no I I would even I don't know if we, we haven't talked about that at length but I mean I would even be willing and I would expect that Pastor Curtis would as well we'd be willing to to figure out another way to do it and if it meant sprinkling somebody we're fine with that but we we dunk them. That's what that's what we do here. Uh, who can perform baptism? Well, baptized Christians, baptized unbaptized Christians. That's biblically speaking. That's about as uh, as as clear as the as the Bible as the Bible is. Um, other than that, Scripture gives no clear direction in regards to who can baptize someone. According to the priesthood of all believers, we are open to family members or close friends performing the actual baptism. Okay, we do, however, though, this second paragraph, we we do, however, recognize that what this is going to explain is that um, our default here at Veritas is that pastors um, baptize people who want to be baptized. If somebody really wants a family member involved, 
or wants them to baptize them, we may say, well, what if they're, they're with us? But if they really would like that person to baptize them, again, we come down and say, okay, we're not going to argue about that. If they're a baptized believer, baptized believer can you know, baptize a, an unbaptized believer. So we're not going to have a problem with that. Um, but that said, and the second paragraph explains this, I, I hope, um, we do believe that the, the pastors need to have either be performing the baptism or have very close oversight of what's taking place. And this isn't directly stated in Scripture. You know, pa- only pastors can baptize people. But it, it can certainly be inferred, we believe, and this, this would be why. We do recognize that baptism is a sign of a believer's entrance into and union with Christ's body, the church. That's why we do this publicly in front of the whole church. Okay, Authority in the church has been given to pastors and elders who are obligated to shepherd the flock and take seriously the sacraments, doing their best to ensure that baptism and communion are recognized and practiced with reverence and in accordance with God's word. So while baptized believers baptize unbaptized believers, um, we also don't want people just getting, you know, making decisions for Christ and getting, you know, baptized in their bathtub that afternoon. We 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 would not advocate that, um, and that is because Hebrews 13. We have to give an account as pastors. We have to give an account for those who are in our flock, and that means that we have to um, do our best. To, to teach people and to lead people well and to discern whether there is an inward grace that we're going to signify outwardly. Um, it's why you're in this baptism class. And so the, the pastors are, are, are very closely, closely involved here. But when it comes down to it, we're not going to say a pastor has to actually do the, the baptism. As well, uh, we believe it's the other problem with the bathtub thing. We believe it's best for a person to be baptized within the fellowship of their local church and if at all possible for them to continue in membership to that local church. Because again, it's a symbol of joining the church. You're joining God's family. So that should be done in front of the rest of God's family. Ideally, God's family that you are going to unite yourself to in in membership. And then finally, and then we'll look at the uh, appendices. Um, Number six, the practice of baptism at Veritas Church. So once a year at this point, we have our, our baptism event. If anybody who's, um, would like to be baptized, we encourage any and all who are ready for baptism to do that. Um, we ask them to come to this class, and then we want you to meet with one of us, one of us pastors. And so I actually I have this here. So just make sure that you you write your name and then your contact. This just says that I am interested in being baptized and would like to be contacted by a pastor. You're obviously in this class, so that's squared away. Then just your name and your contact information. Make sure you you do that before you before you leave because that would be the the next step. And then we sit down in that meeting. It's just it's going through this and just saying any any questions. Um, do I understand? what this is. Um, let me hear your testimony. Um, want to hear and, and see, you know, fruit and make sure somebody really understands the gospel um, and make sure that their profession of faith is, you know, is, is credible. 
if there's any concerns, you know, we, and we've done that before. We, you know, we express those concerns. If we say, you know, um, well, you know, why don't we wait a bit? Then, you know, sometimes we wait a bit. But, again, it's all an effort for us to do that, to do that responsibly. Okay, before I move into, we'll talk about pedo-baptism for a bit here. Any, any questions on that material so far? Okay. How about you, Natalie? Any questions? Okay. Uh, so, a- anybody here had experience with pedo baptism? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So, most of this, I've got some other things I'll probably say. This is taken, well, it says here from another church. This was there. I, I thought it was really concise and helpful. So as we discussed in the section on who should be baptized, we only baptize those who profess to be believers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, not all denominations and traditions follow this practice, just to name a few. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Lutheranism, Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, and a number of mainline Protestant denominations practice infant baptism. Um, we are also a Reformed church here at Veritas. So we agree um, largely with the theology that was recovered during the Reformation in the 17th century. However, we are Reformed Baptists, which means that uh, we believe in believers' baptism. But in the Reformed tradition over the last 400 years, that would certainly be the minority position. Most Reformed churches practice paedo-baptism, not credo-baptism. So we're a bit of an odd duck there. While all practice the same form in regards to infant baptism, they all sprinkle, uh, the underlying theologies of each are quite distinct. And so I want to make those clear. There's a difference between our uh, Protestant paedo-baptists, what they practice and what they believe infant baptism is and what Roman Catholics are doing. So we would totally reject what Roman Catholics believe about infant baptism and would say it's heretical. Um, however, the baptism that our um, Protestant pedo baptist brothers and sisters practice, um, we would not call a heretical doctrine. Um, we would say that we disagree, and we don't see Scripture that way, uh, but they are our brothers and sisters, and we love them and wish to uh, be united with them in ministry and are even willing to make provisions for them to be members in our church. So we love, you know, our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters, but we totally disagree with them on, on this issue. And so let me just explain why. First of all, Roman Catholicism teaches that all infants should be baptized at which time the child is regenerated or born again. Okay, it's taking care of the, the original sin. In the case of infants who are unable to exercise saving faith, the faith of the church is effective to remove original sin and bestow saving grace. That is totally, that is totally unbiblical. The faith of another person, this would be our response to that, the faith of another person will not substitute for a person's own response to the gospel. And the baptismal waters hold no magical powers of regeneration. While God's grace is certainly present in baptism, it is not the gra- is grace of sanctification, not regeneration or justification. Um, so we totally would disagree with that. Now, Protestant paedo-baptism, let me, let me do my best to, to explain, and you can ask questions, um, but let me do my best to 
to faithfully um, defend their position. How they arrive at this conclusion biblically. Some baptize infants and don't have a you know a biblical clue why they do it, and others you know, defend it really well biblically. I mean, many of my heroes, many of my heroes, dead and living, uh, are Pado Baptists, and so they they defend it they defend it biblically. So Protestant Pado Baptism is similar to Roman Catholic infant baptism in form only. That's the only similarity. The other they're both sprinkling babies, but it's that's the only thing that is the same. According to Protestant theology, faith alone is the instrument of ju- in justification and therefore saving grace is not bestowed in baptism. Right? They would agree with us. Therefore, those who practice infant baptism in the Protestant tradition are our brothers in the faith in regards to the essential elements of Orthodox Christianity. Without diminishing our overwhelming agreement on the fundamentals of the faith with those who practice infant baptism, it is nevertheless important to highlight this area of disagreement. So our pedo baptist brothers and sisters do not believe that their infants are saved because of baptism. Well, we'll get there. Protestant paedo-baptism prescribes baptism of adults who convert to Christianity. Okay, so that's the same as us. But differs in practice from those who perform believers' baptism by additionally prescribing infant baptism for children of believing parents. And this view is typically founded upon three main arguments. So first, let me just restate that. If... uh, an adult becomes a believer in a pedo-baptist church, uh, they would baptize them as a believer. So they would practice believer's baptism the way we did. The form, the mode would be different, right? They would sprinkle the adult too. They wouldn't do immersion. But they would baptize them based on their confession of faith. But here's what they would do additionally. They would also, if they have any children, they would also baptize baptize their children okay so this is why they this is why they do that it's based on three main arguments number one we need to think about circumcision in the old testament infants were circumcised in the old covenant right infants were circumcised in the old covenant every male child on the eighth day uh, was circumcised number two baptism is the sign of the new covenant as circumcision was a sign of the Old Covenant. Number three, there is essential continuity between the Old and the New Covenants. So they would, they would link circumcision and, and baptism uh, very closely. They would say that circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant. We would agree. And they would say that Uh, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. We would agree. Okay, so we're in agreement there. But they would say that the new covenant sign of baptism should be administered in the same way that the old covenant sign was administered. So circumcision was administered not only to the parents, but also to the 
The sign of the covenant was was given to the children as well. Therefore, because God didn't say stop doing that, whatever the sign of the new covenant is, which is baptism, we need to administer that the same way. And so the old covenant sign of circumcision was administered to kids of, of, of those in covenant with God. And so baptism in the new covenant must be administered to children as as well. That's where they're that's what they're arguing. So this discussion centers on the degree of continuity between the old and new covenants. Within the old covenant, Israel was commanded to circumcise their sons on the eighth day as a sign and seal of their being included within God's covenant with the nation. Protestant pedo baptism interprets baptism as analogous to circumcision and thus teaches that the sign and seal should be performed for children of new covenant believers as well. As Acts 2.39 states, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's a big verse. A big verse for Pado-Baptists. So I'm going to respond to that now. But is that, uh, does that at least, it's a very basic defense of it. But do you see where they're going with it? Okay. So they, they would agree though that um, that there is not a single example of pedo-baptism. Well, yeah. There's not an explicit example of, of, right, of, of pedo-baptism in the New Testament. There, there is no example. There's no prescribing it in, in the New Testament. There's no, and, and baptize your infants. However, they would say there's also no forbidding. So it does, it does leave some room there, right? It, if you can biblically work it out, which again... Which, which again, they do. So they would just, you know, what they would want to say, though, is that one of the, one of the beauties of the, they would want to say that the, the new covenant, right, is better than the old covenant. Like the, the New Testament says that. That's true. The new covenant is better than the old covenant, right? And we would agree. We would say that the, the, new, the new covenant is absolutely better than the old covenant, we don't have like these shadows and types of things to come, right? We've got the actual fulfillment of them. Um, the ceremonial and civil law were fulfilled in Christ. There's greater personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit under the new covenant indwells believers and gives them gifts. And, and that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit rested on certain people, but he didn't indwell people fully like he does in the new covenant. Um, we're now adopted as sons and daughters. That wasn't true in the... So the new covenant, better than the old covenant, right? But what a Pado-Baptist would want to say is that if you're going to say that the sign of the covenant belonged to children in the Old Testament, okay, and the new covenant is better, then you can't say that the sign of the covenant no longer belongs with the children. They, they would really want to argue that and say, no, you just downgraded the new covenant. They would say, because the new covenant is better, unless God revokes that and says, no, your, your children are no longer covenant children. The, the, the sign and the seal is not to be bestowed on them. You know, John Owen would say, because God doesn't revoke that clearly and forbid it in the New Testament, he would say it's just a no-brainer. Whatever the sign of the new covenant is, you give that to your children as well. Got to be careful. I'm going to like argue it so well that you're like, you become Pado-Baptist. <laughs> so here would be... No, I, I'm sure I don't. I know people do a lot better than that. So here would be our response, though. 
all that said, um, number one, I'm just going to kind of look at you and just kind of gauge whether or not it's making sense. So if it's not, don't nod. <laughs> don't nod. Just cross your eyes, you know, look really confused. Number one, the old covenant community was primarily entered into physically by birth. Whereas the new covenant is entered into spiritually by rebirth, being born again. Whereas Protestant paedo-baptism prescribes baptism for those in physical infancy, credo-baptism insists upon the baptism of those in spiritual infancy, having been born again through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the old covenant you know, God, God's people, you got to look at God's people in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, God's people in the Old Testament were, it was an ethnic people. It was, it was Israel. Okay, that is not the New Covenant people. The New Covenant people is people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And it is not a, it is not a, a physical, well, it is not a, an ethnically, biologically um, united people. It is a spiritually united people. It's not that we've been born into the into Israel. We've been born into the family. We've been reborn into the family of God. So there's a difference. So so the sign of the old covenant made sense uh, because it was it was recognizing that covenant community. Right, your children are part of the covenant community of Israel. But the how do you get into the the new covenant community? Not, not by being born into Israel anymore. The way you get into the new covenant community is by being born again. That's what Nicodemus asked Jesus. How do I do this? You must be born again. Okay, so we have to be saved. We have to become believers and place our faith in Jesus. So we would still say that everybody in the new covenant community gets the sign. But children, before they've professed faith in Christ, are, are not a part of the new covenant community. Okay, so number, number two. Got some nods, so I think we're tracking here. The Old Covenant community was a mixed community composed of both believers and unbelievers. The New Covenant community is technically a congregation of believers. So God's people in the Old Testament was believers and non-believers. Not everybody in Israel was, was going to be saved. That's why in the Old Testament they're referred to as the remnant. So you have the people of God, Israel, this family of God, but then you have within that a saved remnant, right? Daniel was a part of them who were over there in Babylon, but not all of them were. There's a saved remnant within God's covenant community. Well, that's not the case now. In the new covenant community, everyone is saved who's a part of the new covenant community. Jeremiah 31, 34, one of the only texts in the Old Testament that's looking forward to the new covenant. And it talks about those who are in the new covenant and God says that I will make them obey me. I will incline their hearts toward me and they will obey and, and believe. So the difference is that, that those who are in the new covenant, God ensures that, that all in the new covenant are, are believers and are faithful. So number three, though there is a great degree of continuity between the covenants, there is also substantial discontinuity which we're already pointing out. Yeah, they're very, they're, there's continuity there. The new covenant is a full expression of the old covenant, but there's some differences, some distinctions. 
The old covenant consisted of shadows which pointed to the substance fulfilled in Christ. So we need to be careful, we would say, about directly applying elements of the old covenant without recognizing the essential distinctions, like the ones I'm pointing out. So we would just be read as we would, we would say, now you can't just take, well, they did it in the old covenant, so we must do it in the new covenant. Because they're not the same. There are distinctions that I've been talking about that are between the old and the new covenant. So we, we can't just, just lay it over and do things the same. And number four, um, passages such as Acts 2.39, because that's a, that's a big one. When, when Peter looks out and he's preaching and says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So Pato Baptist would want to see, say, say, they would want to say, see? So it's, this is, these promises are for me and for my children. So they are in the covenant just like, just like I am. But the promise affirmed is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it is specifically applied to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The fact that the promise is for your children should no more lead us to thinking that all children are covenant community members as the fact that it is for all who are far off should lead us to conclude that all people everywhere are. So Acts 2.39, it doesn't, it doesn't prove the point that children are part of the covenant community. It proves too much, if that's the case. Right? It proves too much. Because it says that the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. So if you're going to say that this is for you, you're a covenant part of the covenant community, and it's for your children, and they're a part of the covenant community, which a paedo-baptist would say, then we would want to say, well, what about and for those who are far off? If you're going to, you can't just cut the verse off there. Then are you also saying that those who are far, that, that everyone that are part of the covenant community? So we would say that's not what the text is saying. The promise for, you know, for you and, and for your children and for everyone is that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's the promise. But it doesn't mean that our kids and those who are far off are a part of the covenant community. And then um, I could work through these, but I'm not going to work through all of these. Uh, when we look at all the baptisms that are in our only book of history in the New Testament, there's only one book of history, and that's the book of Acts, which is a historical narrative. Um, when we look at all of the, 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 the baptisms and the descriptions there, they, they're clearly all believers who are being baptized. They are all believers who are being baptized. If you want, you can read you read through those on your own. There are, however, some household baptisms. This would be another case where Pado Baptists would say, see, uh, the, it says the whole household was baptized. And so their assumption would be that there were um, unbelieving young children or infants that were that were in the house. So let me... Let me just argue for that, and then we'll be done with this part. Uh, Though the explicit mention of the baptism of an entire household is only made in two accounts in chapter 16, the narrative of Cornelius' conversion probably implies the same. Proponents of infant baptism believe that such baptisms can be used as implicit justification for infant baptism. 
If households were baptized, and if those households included infants, we have biblical evidence of paedo-baptism. But here's a few thoughts. First, it must be noted that the entire argument is founded upon the presumed presence of infants within the household. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that there were infants there. The test itself does not necessitate such a reading. There is no convincing evidence of infants in the households. Though to be fair, there is no explicit statement otherwise either. Second, the texts in question have clues which at least suggest that all who were baptized had been converted. Let's look at them. In Acts 10, it explicitly stated that Cornelius feared God with all his household. Now, that would seem to say to me that all in his household were described as fearing God. Therefore, all those who were baptized feared God. Does that make sense? Okay. And then number two, in Acts 16, where it describes the baptism of uh, the jailer's household, verse 31, Paul or Silas says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, surely this does not mean that if the jailer believed, his household would be saved, as Protestant paedo-baptists would agree. So Paul isn't saying that Hey, just just you, jailer, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, then your whole family will will be saved. Now we're back to like a Roman Catholic kind of thing. So it, it clearly doesn't mean that. So what does it mean? Well, the best interpretation, we would say, is that those who believed would be saved and those who were baptized were those who believed. In addition, the word is spoken to his entire household and his entire household rejoiced together. Additionally, number three, consider the relationship between 1 Corinthians 1.16, which states that Paul baptized the households of Stephanus and 1 Corinthians 16.15, which states that his household consisted of devoted converts. So summary. While the timing and mode of baptism are not absolutely essential to the Christian faith, they are nonetheless important theological convictions that we hold firmly. We love and respect our Protestant brothers and sisters who disagree with believers' baptism, but we believe and subsequently teach it as the biblical form of baptism. Any questions about that? Savannah. I'm sorry? I'm going to let your grandpa answer that tonight. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> he'll, he'll, have a, he'll have a great answer for you. Okay, Savannah. Okay. Um, any other questions about that? Okay. Um, okay, let me, let's work through this one um, quick, too. Uh, and then we'll be done. Uh, Appendix B. This will be the last thing we work through. At what age should believers be baptized? This is a big question. Well, there is no age listed in Scripture. However, we should remember the meaning and criteria for baptism. So, 
just based on everything we've studied so far tonight, these would be conclusions that we would make to help answer that question. Um, at what age should believers be baptized? Um, now, I don't think I say it in here, but we would say that there is not an age of accountability. In other words, we don't think there's like a magic number. You know, oh, well, it's at age 10 or age 12. Um, and at that age, everyone is accountable. We don't, we don't have a verse that, uh, that says that. Um, however, we do believe that there certainly does come uh, a point as a child matures where they are uh, responsible in a very different way to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and, and turn from their sin. We do not expect an infant to do that. We do not expect a, a toddler to do that. And, and we would not say that therefore all children who die as infants or all children who die, you know, age of six and under or all uh, mentally retarded people who die. We would not say that, that all those who are incapable, right, who are naturally unable to comprehend, understand and believe and repent. We would not say that therefore they are all condemned to hell. Okay, the scripture doesn't doesn't teach that. Um, so we would say that there is, there are natural abilities that are that are necessary for someone to even naturally be able to understand and believe the gospel. And um, very young children are, we would say, not mature enough to to do that. But you've still got the question of okay, so when, at what age should children be baptized? So let me let me work through this and. Um, um, so that you can understand why we do things the way we do here. Uh, the meaning of baptism is a display of personal salvation caused by union with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Check. Covered that tonight. The criteria for baptism is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, resulting in union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, a credible profession of faith must precede baptism. There should be evidence of an inward grace if it is going to be formally signified before the church. Check. Right? We, we, covered, we covered that. So let's take those principles and try to answer this question. So at what age should believers be baptized? Based on this, a child should not be baptized until they have made a credible profession of faith. And a profession of faith is made credible by fruit. Therefore, we think it is wise to observe the fruit of faith before baptizing. So basically, we look at children the same way that we look at adults. And it's not just uh, a profession a profession of faith. I mean, very rarely do children in a... Who are, very rarely do children who have Christian parents deny the faith as children. I mean, very rarely does a six-year-old who has a Christian mom and a, and a dad doubt that what their mom and dad is telling them is actually true and publicly denounce Christ. That does, that does not happen because children are trusting and, and believing their, um, their parents. However... While all children, therefore, will, uh, in Christian homes or the vast majority, will make professions of faith. 
I mean, all my boys, since they, you know, they could first form the words, would tell you they loved Jesus and, 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 and had faith in him and trusted him. And they all made professions of faith as soon as they could talk. But what are we looking for? Just like we do with adults, a credible, a credible profession of faith. What makes that profession of faith credible? Well, Christ says, as we've already talked about, will there be fruit? There will be fruit. So in, in kids, we're, we're, we're looking for fruit. We're looking for the fruit of, of faith. Um, so though rare, I already said this, a young child of Christians may be an outspoken unbeliever. I've never seen it, but it's possible. It is more likely that the child will be some level of professing believer. They should be treated with respect as a professing believer and because God is in the habit of saving the children of believers, parents should hope for the best. Right? Proverbs 22 says, raise a child in the way he should go and when he was old, he will not depart from it. I mean, clearly God is in the habit of saving the children of believers. Not that they're all saved, but he is in the habit of doing that. He blesses them by giving them godly parents. Um, so we should we should have an expectation that at some point their profession of faith will be will, will see fruit. We should be hoping for fruit. That said, okay, here's the deal. Distinguishing real fruit can be difficult in a young child. So this is our concern. Okay, distinguishing real fruit can be difficult in a young child. For example, right? Is there in Peyton? We talk. Oh, Peyton's getting baptized next month, but we talk openly. We've talked openly for two years about this. Is their change in conduct truly the result of conversion, or are they simply modifying their behavior to appease mom and dad? Right. So you see a change in behavior. Okay. Well, is that fruit of faith? Is that proof that they've been regenerated and converted by Christ, or is it just behavior modification? Because you've seen that in non-Christian homes where kids, you know, they'll, they'll crack down, super nanny comes in, and the kids are behaving much better. Well, there's fruit, but is it fruit of faith necessarily? Well, with a kid? I mean, it's hard to tell. Are they old enough to understand the realities of their sin and the reality of God's grace through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ? Right. Is it, are they are they able to really place their faith in Christ? They got to be old enough to understand that that they are a great sinner and He is a great Savior. I don't think kids have to be all that old to get that. But you know, my my four year old Blaze, four year old today, he doesn't he doesn't get that yet. You know, um, so you know, are they old enough where they can get that? Or kids by nature want to please mom and dad. Kids are gullible. Right? If we want to dupe them, we can dupe them. And they, they want to, we can trick them, right? We're not. Uh, and they want to please mom and dad. They want to make mom and dad happy. There comes, I've, I've heard there comes an age when they don't want to please mom. They could give a rip about pleasing mom and daddy. But when they're children, they want to. So an adult is more likely to have the mental ability to understand the gospel. And as well, an adult is less likely to make a profession of faith in order to please his parents. I've seen adults do that, but it is less likely that they're wanting to please mom and dad, that they don't really understand um, uh, and, and behavior modification. Okay, but with a child, it's a little little trickier. So, what are the marks of a credible profession of faith? Well, Jonathan Edwards he gives these five. I like them. So we look for these in our kids: a heightened esteem for Jesus. 
right? Do they, they love? Do they love Jesus? Not just say it, but the, you see it. There's love evident. A growing distaste for sin, an increasing sense of certainty in the truth of Scripture, an increased tendency to recognize and cherish truth, a spirit of growing love to God and man. We're looking for these marks of true conversion. And I can remember, you know, in regards to Peyton and I and our discussions, we were talking about this um, this morning or recently, and it was three years ago, I think, give or take, and uh, where he, thankfully, was real open and honest. He said he just had a really hard time um, believing believing the gospel. He understood it. He understood that you know God created and made and, and all of this, but he, he just said, yeah, I just, have a, I just have a really hard time believing that that's actually true. And of course, he couldn't see him, you know, et cetera. So it was interesting to see how that, how that worked out and, and how that developed till, the, till he got to a point where he was, you know, where there was no doubt. You know, and he was totally, he was totally convinced of it and able to able to see even over the last year how, how things just seemed to you know click and recognize something going on in his in his heart but so we're looking for that so here are the principles that we give parents to navigate quickly number one we want parents to understand for themselves the meaning of baptism take it seriously number two remember baptism is not necessary for salvation so don't rush children into this ordinance it is possible to be rash with baptism and therefore thereby be a lending hand in the child's deception by affirming faith that is not actually present. So kind of what we're worried about pastors doing for adults, parents could do that for their kids. You get quick to baptize them and then, oh, Christian Johnny, you know, and, and he just goes believing that when actually there's never been, it was never a credible profession of faith. So let me read this. I think this hits home. Um, baptize an eight-year-old and he will be compelled to believe those in whom he trusts who have confirmed his faith. And when he comes to maturity and maybe discovers the absence of grace in himself, he could be tempted to silence his own conscience with the fact that his parents and pastor think he's a Christian because they baptized him and added him to the church. He's been told he really is saved by others whose unbiblical practices are now employed by this little sinner to deceive himself into quelling his agitated conscience and keep him from actively seeking to get right with God. I've seen teens come under conviction of sin only to be superficially silenced by parents who remind them that they were baptized or, quote, they prayed a prayer or they walked the aisle. They must certainly be already saved. They should simply ignore the agitation of an awakened conscience. The child then presumes himself to be a Christian and develops a deaf ear to gospel appeals convinced by the priestly pronouncements of parents and pastor because they were baptized when they were 10 years old. If they are not saved, then an indescribable culpability is implicated upon parent and pastor. And this was me, by the way. This was my experience. The next stage is the development of a double life. One life to please the parents who so desperately want the child to really be saved and won't even tolerate the idea he may not be. And another life given to lust and sensuality. The teen who legitimately wants to please his parents and his childish credulity 
believes that he has been told by the church and begins to develop what he has been told and begins to develop a spiritual schizophrenia and is liable to develop two identities, one for parents and church, the other for self, but neither for God. Either you've experienced this or you or you can ask Christian teens and they they can share this reality with you. When times or doubt or even patterns of sin develop, the teen finds a wall erected through which he cannot communicate. How can he tell his beloved parents that he really is not a disciple of Christ? He will either be arrested by the Holy Spirit and repent of his rocky soil, thorny ground response to the gospel, or when he finally comes to the age of maturity and independent conduct, leave the faith altogether and apostatize. Or he may do what many who have been raised in decent Christian homes do, become a formal, notional, nominal Christian who knows the right things and does many of the right things, but has no real heart for God, enjoys no real communion with God. Formalism is the death nail to the longevity of the local church. It often emerges in the second generation, that generation born to the pioneers who fought for the truth and paid the cost of persecution to get the church to be what it is, only to hand it over to their children who know formally what should be done, but have no real love for Christ or his truth. I don't think he overstates it. And I think that this is the the issue, the crux of the issue, and why we need to be careful in baptizing children. Because just as we can be quick to baptize unconverted adults, it can we can be even more I think it's more rampant in good, decent Christian homes for kids to get baptized and then be put in a very awkward position if they realize later in their life that they're not they don't they're not actually believers, maybe. And they may realize that and just be feel trapped. Or because they just got pounded into their heads, you're a believer, you're a believer, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. They're not even listening to gospel appeals anymore. They're not even listening to, you know, the call, come and be saved. They've turned that off because they are saved. But what if they're what if they're not? And and I would say as a pastor, my experience again that the, the church is literally full of unconverted people who claim to be members of Christ's church. Well, we're back up. How does that start? Not taking conversion seriously, not understanding it, not taking baptism seriously, not understanding it, not taking membership seriously, not understanding it. Oh, sure, you're converted. Oh, sure, we'll baptize you. Oh, sure, become a member of the church. Well, if they're not converted, we're just contributing to the delusion. We just, we just want to be careful with those things. Number four, teach your child the gospel. Number four, pray for your child. Number five, anticipate and look for a changed life. Any questions? No questions. Oh, great. So I've got this up here. If we need to get any names down there, make sure you do that before you leave. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for this night. And I thank you that uh, that Peyton could be here and Linda and Savannah and Pastor Curtis and Natalie and Deborah and Larry. God, I pray that you would dismiss us tonight with joy, with joy in you. And God, I pray that you would use this teaching 
to to bolster our commitment to truth and sound doctrine. That we would realize, God, that we do not want to value sound doctrine for the sake of being right, for the sake of winning arguments, for the sake of being condescending. But God, because what is at stake is your church and the testimony of your grace and your glory is at stake, God. So may we not water down truth to the point that we can fill our churches with unbelieving, unregenerate professors of faith. So help us, God. Make us passionate about this. I pray this teaching would embed itself in our hearts and it would, that we would proclaim it and, and carry on these, these, these truths and these ideas and these thoughts and, our, in our, and these concerns and our conversations. We love you, God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.